Welcome to episode 10 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Fazy, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. This week, we've got packed up podcast as we're going to be covering lots of ground because later we're going to be talking to the great polymath and national treasure of radio and TV journalist Sir John Chuser. His latest book, On Board, sheds light on what it's like to be on the boards of big institutions, including those at the heart of arts administration in Britain. We're going to start today by talking about the great painter Stanley Spencer, who died in 1959 and was particularly known for his shipbuilding on the Clyde series and even more for his biblical scenes, many of them painted and set in his beloved home village of Cookham, which I have visited, which bizarrely is in the constituency of Theresa May. Oh, <laughs> well, Cookham by the Thames, where Spencer was born and spent most of his life, is home to the Stanley Spencer Gallery, which opened in 1962. It's dedicated to his work and is housed in the former Wesleyan Chapel, where Spencer used to worship. There's a new exhibition there that focuses on his love life, or rather the sadness at the heart of it. Love, Art, Loss, The Wives of Stanley Spencer opened in August and featured several paintings of his two wives, Hilda Carlene and Patricia Priest. Here to tell us what this exhibition says about Spencer as a man and as an artist is the curator, Amanda Bradley. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. It's very nice to have you, Amanda. And as Ed said, he's a huge fan and I'm also a huge fan of Stanley Spencer's work. But I know very little of the man himself. And this exhibition is quite revelatory about his inner emotional life and its effect on his art. So can you start by telling our listeners about Spencer's married life? Because it was far from conventional, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> extremely complicated. In a nutshell, Stanley fell in love with Hilda Carline, who is a fellow artist, very talented. Um, one of the highlights of the show actually is her self-portrait. She was serving her him uh, soup one evening um, at her house in Hampstead. They were having a big artistic soiree and he felt this sort of meeting of mind. It was a real, you know, coup de foudre. And actually one of the things I wanted to make clear in this exhibition, you know, everyone judges Stanley for being a bit of a cad and ditching Hilda, but actually their relationship from the beginning was extremely complicated. Uh, she suffered from depression. They had conflicting religious ideals and four years after they were married uh, Stanley met another woman Patricia Priest also an artist and fell head over heels in love with her um, it was a complete obsession in a nutshell Hilda is forced to divorce him he marries Patricia but their marriage was never consummated and uh, Patricia spent the rest of her life with her lover Dorothy and that led to you know all sorts of exceptional and tragic artistic outpourings from Stanley. After he broke up with Patricia, he um, Patricia let his house out to someone else. I mean, she was extremely venal. She completely took everything he had. And he ended up working in the studio and started a series called The Beatitudes of Love, which I think are probably some of the ugliest paintings um, in the history of modern British art. Um, <laughs> they've got real resonance with, you know, um, new objectivity, Neue Sachlichkeit, you know, the likes of Otto Dix. And then he moves to Swiss Cottage where he does fall into depression and paints a series, Christ in the Wilderness, very extremely introspective, although equally typically for Stanley, sort of comparing himself to the son of God, I would say, is quite usual. <laughs> he was a bit of a narcissist. Um, and... Actually, ultimately, you know, 
Hilda, who he remained devoted to for the rest of his life, his first wife, also suffered from depression. So ironically, him being able to experience the sort of mental breakdown in some ways gave him you know, this renewed sympathy for Hilda and he supported her much more ironically after their divorce than before it. I mean, I think what's exciting about this exhibition is that it's it's really showing that how much of an influence Spencer had on the development of modern British art generally, because he created out of his misery that very raw, hyper-realistic style you know, that emerged from his confusion and sense of loss. So in a way, this is a very important exhibition, isn't it? Because it's reappraising the impact of his work on the overall British art scene, really. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think the realism and, you know, emotional rawness of his, you know, particularly the series of nudes he did of um, Patricia and himself, you know, they put Freud in the shade. You know, there's, um, you know, Freud, Emin, all those artists couldn't have done what they did without Stanley. Um, and, you know, if you think these things were done in the 30s, uh, it's just extraordinary. And they were truly shocking at the time. And even now, actually, I find it quite hard to look at, you know, what's called the dub leg of mutton nude, which is in Tate, you know, Patricia lying there completely naked with this sort of raw chunk of meat next to her. You know, the psychological, you know, impact of that is enormous. Does Freud, does Freud acknowledge his uh, debt to Spencer? Because I love Spencer as a painter. And of course, I hadn't really appreciated the line, if you like, from Spencer through to Freud. You know, that's a good question. Of course, he knew of Stanley. Um, but I don't know if there's anything written down, um, you know, specifically well, linking the two. There's a monumental two-volume biography. I'll have to wait. I'll have to look at Yeah, up. well, likewise, <laughs> likewise. Now, of course, uh, I mean, Charlotte's taken all the best and most thoughtful questions, partly because my uh, I put myself on mute for some bizarre reason. So every time I tried to say something intelligent, neither of you could hear me. So let me just, uh, <laughs> let, so me just uh, let me just uh, ask. Uh, to, I the, I went to cook them with Theresa May. Me too. Cool. I've been there with her as well. <laughs> and actually, he's one of Theresa's uh, Theresa May's uh, favorite artists as well. You see, I think this is the untold story, the link between yeah. Stanley Spencer. And Theresa May, the sort of rawness, uh, the <laughs> angst, the depression. I don't dare comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you mm. very much. I'll put myself back on mute. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I think that was really interesting, Amanda, and I can't wait to come and see it. Next, we want to talk about theatre. And in particular, we want to look at the very different kind of crisis that a small local theatre faces as compared to the crisis being faced by are very big institutions. One of my favourite small theatres is one of my local theatres, the Playground Theatre on Latimer Road. It's also one of Charlotte's favourites as well. And here to tell us about what's happening there and how it's surviving is its amazing artistic director, Anthony Biggs. He became the first director there in 2017. He's still at the helm. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Anthony, and we're delighted to have you on. As I'm a huge fan of your theatre, as Ed says. In fact, I think the last play I saw minutes before lockdown was Sinners, directed by Brian Cox, um, starring his wife. Yes. Um, but it's also the first time we've talked to someone on this podcast about the challenges and indeed the advantages of running a small local theatre. 
And I read a very good piece you wrote in which you described staring Beckett light into the abyss, <laughs> um, <laughs> following all the crises hitting theatre in general, from the rise of prescription TV to lockdown. But you also said that in the wake of that, you're now feeling quite optimistic about the agility of small theatres to re-engage with their communities, listen to them, reimagine what you're doing and really give them what they want. For example, not only did your cafe serve 7,000 meals to the community in lockdown, but you've also talked about the playground as being somewhere to debate all the institutional failings around the Grenfell Tower inquiry because of your proximity to it. So start by telling our listeners a bit more about how you've gone about really drawing the community in. Well, I think the first thing to say is that when during lockdown, we, we never really closed. We we uh, we moved all our online, um, our uh, outreach activity online. So we carried on working the whole way through. Obviously, we are a theatre and we want to be live. And uh, the moment that we were allowed to to reopen, uh, we started the process of doing that. We're lucky because we're, we're effectively a, a large room. We're an old bus depot that was converted in about 20 years ago into a development space. And then I turned it into a theatre three years ago. But it means that we've got a very flexible space. And we are a local theatre. We are, we, there's nobody else anywhere near us as a theatre. Um, then our nearest other theatres like The Bush and um, The Gate are quite some way away so we are we have our own local community who want to support our theatre um, and because we were very well supported when we opened actually uh, reopening there's been a, a, a great wave of love towards us and it's been wonderful actually that's absolutely brilliant it is a, it is a wonderful uh, theatre it's wonderful to hear what you're doing with it so we've also talked a lot on this podcast about how the arts can have a massive impact on mental health so Another string to your bow, as it were, is your award-winning play reading programme, Well Read. And that uh, started with a local uh, institution, again, just down the road from you, the St. Charles Mental Health Unit. Uh, but it's also become a Zoom initiative in lockdown targeting isolation and loneliness. We'd love to hear a bit about that. ISA started going onto the wards and reading plays with uh, with um, the patients. And what I discovered straight away was that they they loved it. So it, it started like that. And, and then we we just, uh, when, when we realised that we were going to have to uh, close down, we just moved everything online, which I thought was going to be <laughs> going to be trouble. But actually, it turned out to be uh, an absolute saviour. And it, it, it's worked wonderfully. In fact, to the point where people who have who were in St Charles and related to other members of the community who've moved away um, have called in and we've had people from all over the country in fact we've had people from America Australia all over the place calling in to join the groups what you said uh, just now really struck a chord with me which is people engaging without thinking of it as a sort of therapeutic uh, session and I think uh, it you know the arts have such a brilliant way of drawing people out, uh, you know, even singing in a choir is enormously therapeutic. Uh, and I'm amazed that the government doesn't take this stuff more seriously, although it's beginning to. Well, I think people do know that, that the arts has a massive impact. I know listening to your podcast, I, I know that that's something that you talk about. And, and I, it, it, the arts has a massive impact. And, and um, 
it, it is a way of bringing communities together. It allows people to communicate and to be able to uh, empathise in a way that uh, perhaps other, other, other ways of working with the arts is, doesn't work so well. It's such a wonderful, wonderful expression of love, theatre. And it's, I, what I love about bring, bringing our communities, our local community together, is I get to see so many different kinds of people, so many people from different backgrounds coming through our doors, uh, and they all sit down together and they all share something together. And that, that is a really special thing. You know, it's such a tonic, Anthony, hearing you talk so enthusiastically. It, is, it really is. I mean, we've obviously, as you know from listening to this podcast... I think this is a therapy session for us, Charlotte. It is, because we've had our fair share of gloom and doom on this podcast. It's just absolutely wonderful to hear you sounding so upbeat. I mean, I yeah, feel I really sort of... Over- <laughs> Honestly, we're slightly shocked. <laughs> Uh, well, against all odds, you've managed to have quite a packed programme through September. So can you tell us a bit more about the new opera you're putting on at the end of October and also hot off the press? You heard it here first. Tell us about Bojangles and what else you're going to be doing in November. So the things that are coming up, we have... Um, uh, Blue Electric, which is I, I I don't want to call it a Holocaust opera, but it's it has that as it, as its backdrop, and it's about a, um, a daughter and a father who who are both uh, suffering from the effects of the Holocaust, um, and it, it it's um, but it's a it's a it's still in development. A lot of what we what we do, the work that we do, is work that is um, it's just just about to arrive. So we I don't really tend to stage anything that's been done. Uh, many times before. I see ourselves as a sort of crucible. We try things out. Bojangles is a company that we've um, had before. They're an incredible uh, musical quartet, but they uh, it's uh, their style. If you look them up, if you watch them, you'll see what I mean. They, they fling themselves around. They don't do... Uh, they turn classical music on its head. They, they play... Uh, a, a quartet it's like they're a sort of some rock concert um and it's <laughs> but they, they play music that you know they mash up everything from uh wagner to abba we we are programmed um really now up until christmas with with different projects we've got a, uh we're doing a um a musical based on the tt races in um the isle of man you are in one sense you're lucky to live in a bus depot Anthony, because uh you can be very flexible with your space. I mean, when you when you um, launch Blue Electric, presumably there'll be uh, suitable social distancing for the audience and so on. We are a small theatre, so even in, in our normal configuration, we'd be about 150 people. Now we're down to probably about 50. So does it really work with an audience of 50? The atmosphere work? It work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does. And um, you have to be... Uh, uh, clever about how you do it but at the moment there's such a thirst for live entertainment that people are just uh they're, they're so up for it they really want to to engage um in everything that we've done even when we've only had um sort of 20 or 30 people in there for one or two shows it's still been really it's worked really really well well, I think you need to be applauded from the rooftops for just carrying on. I think, I mean, I feel, you know, desperately sorry for so many theatres that are not able to do that, particularly other smaller theatres, you know, the ones that were set up above pubs and things like that. Of course, they they cannot. create. There's no way that they can open up at the moment. But for, for us, we can. And, and until we're told otherwise, we are going to, yeah, we're going to celebrate it. That's what we do.
brilliant. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Now, finally, Sir John Tusa is a figure, certainly a voice that most of you will recognise from his years as a radio and television journalist. He presented BBC Two's Newsnight between 1980 and 1986. But he also, of course, ran the BBC World Service. For his Radio 3 programme, he interviewed well over 50 major figures in the art world. But the key reason we want to talk to him is that for over 30 years, he's also had his finger in countless other cultural pies, whether it's the European Union Youth Orchestra, the Barbican Arts Centre, the University of the Arts London, the British Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, the CLAW Leadership Programme. He's written several books. In fact, quite a lot are on my shelf. But his latest, which I've just read, came out in August, and it's called On Board. And it takes us behind the closed doors of the boardroom, both not-for-profit uh, arts boards, but also some for-profit companies, particularly a US radio company. As someone who's served on so many boards, we're excited to hear about what he can reveal about their inner workings. So we're delighted to have him with us today. Good morning, John. Good morning, Ed. Great to be here. Good morning, John. It's wonderful to have you with us. There's so much to talk about today. So I thought I'd kick off with the big question. How on earth are the arts going to survive? Um, I wish I could say that I thought there was some easy solution to the situation that all organisations which depend on audiences and attendance find themselves in. If you're a football club and you have 80,000 people usually, and now you can only have 3,000, your business model has gone absolutely bust. If you're a concert hall with 2,000 seats and you can only have 300 people, your business model has gone bust. There's no way around that, and I don't think anybody at the moment, short of a good deal of government support, knows what the answer is. What I do think it's worth doing, though it won't solve all these problems, is to take the opportunity to make sure that an organisation, arts organisations certainly, are as well run as they can be, they're as efficient, that the management side is good, and that the relationship between management and governance, the supervisor, board is really good. This is not the time for executive boards and supervisory boards not to be 100% aligned. And if there's any danger they fight one another, then the chances of any organisation recovering from where we are now will be diminished. John, I've read your book. I think it's an absolute wonderful uh, both memoir, but also guide to what makes a good board member. So tell us, you've had 30 years of board experience. What does make a good board member? The good board member is somebody who brings their whole personality to the board. You are usually recruited to a board or get on the board because you have a particular skill. It may be accountancy, it may be human relations, it may be the law, um, but you are never or you should never just be the uh, trustee or board member who deals in that subject. I always say, you know, all board members are equal and you bring your common sense and your humanity to the entire activity of the board. You know, I always insisted that it's not just the accountant who asks or the auditor who asks questions about finances. It's everybody. And, and I said, there are no stupid questions on a board. So you bring your humanity, you bring your common sense, you bring your good judgment, and also you bring time. The truth of matter is you need to give it time and the more time you can give it the better it is what are the differences between a british board and an american board well in some respects 
What I learned about an American board was Americans are incredibly serious in the best sense about governance. Management produces, it has to run the organization and it produces the strategy and governance then reviews that strategy and the work of the chief executive to make sure that it is, it is consistent. Now, a lot of people don't understand this. It is quite amazing how often boards think that what they're there for is to interfere um, in what the management does. By the by, there is no difference in governance in a corporate, a large corporate, and governance in the arts. Governance in the arts can be more difficult. And by the by, in this respect, various business people, including John Brown um, and uh, David Norgrove from Arks and Spencer, and a banker like Bob Boas, all said arts boards are incredibly difficult and complex, and probably much more complex than corporate boards of 10 times the size. What Norgrove pointed out was that about the British Museum was how many layers of potential contradiction there are. For example, you have to make your uh, material, your objects available, but you also have to conserve and protect them. Well, actually those two are rather aglay. You have to make money from your, your exhibitions, but you also have to keep the scholarship going. You have to be aware of what a government's views on the arts are, but you also have to be very, very aware of what the nature of your organization is. And they're just layers of, of complexity. As I said, John Brown said that the British Museum, which is a 50 million pound organization, was at least as complex to run as a 500 million pound uh, business. It, it, it's, the, these things are, are, are ridden, riddled with, uh, with, with tensions and contradictions. That's why, again, I say, and I don't just say this to encourage people in the arts, you know, what we're trying to do and what is worth doing, and you'll certainly know this, is, is both complex, and when we fail, it's not because we're stupid, it's just it's a very complex activity, but it is worth doing, and that is why we want more people and need more people to join boards and to give their skill and their time to them. Now, John, you a lot of the boards that you chaired or sat on were of kind of est existing and established institutions like the British Museum and the National Portrait Gallery, but one I'm particularly fascinated with, partly because I spent some time with her this week, is... Uh, you're chairing the claw because this was founded by the wonderful Dame Vivian Duffield. How did you manage that relationship? Partly because she was very, very clear about what her role was. She has, by the by, always said when asked about leadership, she said, I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. I just help things to happen. So long as things were going in line with what the purposes of the claw leadership were. She had opinions. She expressed them, uh, sometimes in a very colourful way. There was, one, <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was one occasion uh, after a few years that we thought we needed a review of what we were doing. <laughs> and Sue Hall and I proposed quite a complicated review. And Vivian listened to all this and said, I don't need all this Jewish angst. <laughs> and so we said, I said, well, it may be Protestant conscience as well. But, you know, this was Vivian being common sense. She reckoned the thing was going well. She was, it was going in the right direction. You didn't then dig it up by the roots and spend a lot of money doing it. And also sometimes she'd say when we were, we were, we were choosing fellows for the Clawley uh, Fellowship, she'd say, why do we have to have these people from all these mixed up art forms? Why, you know, either they're music or they're arts or they're drama. But when they're all four rolled together and a bit of circus thrown in as well, what's going on? <laughs> 
Now, I just want to do a quick, uh, a chunky change of gear, um, because I was joking that I have three of your books on my shelves, and I realised, of course, that the fourth is on my bedside table. I mean, I'm, I'm clearly a John Tuso <laughs> groupie by osmosis, uh, which is your autobiography, because I was trying to think, I was thinking about your description of Newsnight. So, of course, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about the creation of Newsnight, which at the time was very, very cutting edge uh, change. And you had to get it through past a very sceptical director general. Bits of the BBC are always rigid. You know, take that for, for, for granted. The, the rigidities occur in different times, different places. Bits of it were rigid, but there was enough flexibility and enough people with ideas. And the first editor, a man called George Kerry, who had the idea for Newsnight, knew that you could get it through. And um, it then, I think, influenced how uh, news worked. Uh, Channel 4 News, by the by, has always said that all they do is what Newsnight has done. And so it, it's had influences uh, uh, all, all over the place. One of the things that leapt out of me as a political junkie was, you know, you changed the way you reported p party conferences. Previously, they were reported as sort of state communist style listen to the leader from the podium and you went behind the scenes off to the fringe meetings and things like that and that's a change now people completely take this for granted but you changed it yes and of course technology helped us because when we began doing that believe it or not we were still shooting film on camera which then had to go if we were at Blackpool for part of conference. It then had to be go to Manchester to be processed, then brought back to be edited. I mean how we ever did anything heaven alone knows but then digital cameras came in and suddenly you could be wandering around everywhere all through the corridors into the meetings and poor Willie Whitelaw or lovely Willie Whitelaw deputy prime minister on one occasion he said well I, I don't know what's happening he said I'm you know, we we have this party conference and we have it organized and and, and we have the message and people put the message on, uh, over and then Newsnight comes along and changes it all <laughs> so tell us what what would you do about how is the BBC going to navigate its way through its new director general, imminent appointment of a chairman, and a government that appears to be not perhaps the friendliest government they could have. The BBC has become far too cumbersome. There are layers and layers. I know somebody who is a controller, a person who runs an entire network. And I said to them, I said, it must be great fun being controller. Um, you can shape the network. Uh, with, with your ideas. He said, no, no, no. I have at least three layers above me that I have to consult. There's compliance, there's policy, there is strategy. And only when, they, when they've all signed off, am I allowed to do what I'm supposed to do? And really, those layers, which I have to say, my very good friend Tony Hall, when he became Director General, he said he wanted to delayer the BBC, and he didn't. And if, uh, and if Tim Davey can, number one, and also the self-indulgence of presenters. Somebody said to me, a young person said to me last night, but how can you expect journalists not to express their views on social media? I said, it's very simple, actually. If you work for the BBC and you are paid a decent sum of money, not a ridiculous sum of money, as many of them are, then your responsibility is to put questions and to analyse in the interest of the audience. And your views are immaterial. Why should the public trust presenters who affect to be impartial and dispassionate and then are writing all sorts of egotistical things on on the social media and a new balance has to be struck there and i think the new director general 
must, must do that. Also, by the way, when people say the BBC is biased, I would fight back very, very much more. It's the easiest thing in the world to say the BBC is biased. And this time the BBC said, well, no, we're not for the following reasons. And not just because both sides say that we're biased. I think the BBC has to be more robust. And I also finally think that the public are much more behind the BBC than the politicians ever realise. I think the politicians may, may have a sense that if they took on the BBC and tried to hack it down, there'd be a terrific reaction. I may be wrong. I think you're right. John, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's fascinating. And I will keep rereading your on board. Great. Ed, Charlotte, thank you very much indeed. That's all we've got time for this week. But thank you so much for listening. And please remember that all the details of everything we've talked about will be on our website, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.